0: But today, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, uh, a sermon that I've titled, the, God, the Son of God, the Lord of Deliverance. I wonder, as you're finding your way to Mark chapter 5, I wonder how you might respond if Jesus himself were to walk into your workplace, just while you're in the middle of uh, giving a rundown for your boss, whatever a rundown is, you figure it out. Jesus walks in. Or what about in your classroom? Is you're in the middle of teaching a lesson or you're in the middle of staying awake while your teacher is teaching a lesson? Jesus walks in. What if Jesus walked into this building in the middle of our worship service right now? Assuming we even recognized him when he came in and began doing the things that he does, the things that we see him doing, healing, teaching, caring for people. Probably we, we wouldn't force Jesus to leave if he came in, but Maybe some locked into a habit and way of doing things, particularly at work or maybe at school, but friends, maybe even at church, locked into a habit of, uh, and schedule. This is when these things happen. This is when we do these things. Maybe we, we might like if Jesus would stop doing what he was doing just so he wouldn't be a distraction to the schedule. We've got things to do after all. Some though, some might not see Jesus as a, as a nuisance, as an interruption to their day, but some might quit all that they were doing to watch him. Set aside all of their work to listen to Him. Maybe even quit without notice to follow after Him. In Mark chapter 5, when Jesus arrives on the scene, we find that people do not always respond as positively as we might think. It's easy to assume if Jesus were to walk in here, of course we would all know it's Him. We would all love that He's here and we would all drop everything to be with Him, to be around Him, to be near Him. But that's not always the case. In Mark chapter five, Jesus goes from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum to the eastern side to the region of the Gerasenes, as Mark describes it. and as he shows up on that shore and starts doing what he does, he's received in different ways by different people. Now in mark chapter five the the, the, the idea that is right there at the top what mark is communicating to his earliest listeners and to uh, readers of his gospel today that the, the idea that's right in front of us is is that jesus the son of is the son of the most high god who powerfully delivers the demonized we'll see jesus exercising another demon he binds satan and plunders souls to make them whole and well the, the main idea for the sermon this morning is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, has all power to evict demonic powers and to restore the spiritually broken. That's the idea that's right on the top of Mark's text here. But just beneath it, and not very far, is, is really a call to, or, or to reflect on how we respond to Jesus when He starts doing these things. How, how is it that we receive and, and respond and react When Jesus starts doing what only Jesus can do, Jesus, the Son of God, has all power to evict demonic powers and to restore the spiritually broken. And as we see Him do this in Mark 5, and as we see other people respond to what He's doing, let us consider this morning how we respond to the person and work of Jesus. Will we defy Him? Will we ask Him to leave us alone and get back to our schedule? Or will we fall on His grace and power to deliver us so that we might be able to follow Him and declare His praises? That may seem like a rhetorical question, but, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to be intentionally reflective because I don't think all of us would or may, maybe not be as reflexively ready to do what we know we ought to. I invite you to stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. When last we left off, we saw Jesus Uh, on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, in the middle of a great storm. And he calms the storm with just a word. And all the disciples are filled with great fear and say to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 5 verse 1 begins this way. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to, subdu- to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell face down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, the spirits begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs, let us enter them.' So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid.' And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Jesus, the Son of God, has all power to evict demonic powers and restore the spiritually broken. The main idea of this text is right there on top for us to see. But as we see Jesus exercising His power over the demonic, exercising His ability to make spiritually broken people whole again, we see Him interacting with different groups of characters, of figures, of entities throughout the course of this passage, and Jesus interacts with them in interesting ways. First, in verses 1 through 13, we see Jesus over the demonic. Jesus over the demonic. As chapter 5 opens, Jesus is now arriving on the other side of the lake. He's arriving in the region or the country of the Gerasenes. This is Mark's generalizing term for the region. They're extending eastward. Sorry, that looks probably west to you. Eastward. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, into an area called the Decapolis, a, a, a sort of a congregation of 10 small cities, mostly Greek and, and Gentile in, uh, uh, in population. This is a scene, as we come to it, you may not have noticed it at first, but this is a scene full of spiritual and ritual uncleanness. First of all, this is a Gentile country. They, these are not Jews. These are not Hebrews. These are not people that are following the God of Israel. This is a Gentile country. And and we know it's predominantly a Gentile country, not just from uh, the historical record, but because there's a herd of pigs there. Pigs are considered ritually unclean for for Jews. So Hebrews would not eat pigs. It was part of the dietary restrictions given by God uh, to His people in the law of Moses. So there are unclean animals there. We also find that where Jesus and his disciples land is an area near or among some tombs. They, they show up at a graveyard. Dead bodies are also considered ritually unclean. For the Hebrews, to touch a dead body would make you ritually unclean. That doesn't mean that you're sinful or bad or somehow permanently excluded from the fellowship of God, but that there's a process of ritual cleansing you go through to be able to worship in the temple again. So they're in an unclean nation around unclean animals. They're in an unclean place where a bunch of dead people are. And add to that an unclean spirit, unclean, 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 and Jesus shows up here we, we should see and not miss that Jesus is invading these unclean and Gentile and unlikely places in order to bring his kingdom to bear there. Jesus is not afraid of unclean things and unclean people in unclean places. He comes invading those areas with all of the holiness of God to bring his kingdom to bear there. So here in this unclean place, there's a man with an unclean spirit, as we learn, a legion of unclean spirits, it comes to Jesus as he shows up. The demons that have ravaged this man's soul and used his body as a host for their terror gave him, we find, a supernatural sort of strength that kept him from being restrained or bound, even by chains, and drove him to the point of cutting himself with stones. Understand this about Satan and his demonic forces, just from what we see in this man's life. That Satan and his demons hate image bearers of God and are hell-bent on their destruction. They have destroyed this man's life, and they are actively destroying his life as Jesus comes on the scene. They've already destroyed his relationships among the people such that he has to live in exile of sorts in the cemetery, and now they're driving him mad to the point of cutting himself with stones. Everything that they lead this man, influence this man to do is destructive. Seeing Jesus from afar, the demonized man makes his way to the Lord, and he falls down before him. And as we've seen in other demon possession accounts in Mark, the demon tries to play the naming game with Jesus. He calls Jesus for who he is. He uses Jesus' divine title, Son of the Most High God. What have you to do with us? It was a common, uh, common way of thinking among the ancients that when it came to matters of the spiritual and, 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 and interacting with spirits, that if you knew the spirit's name, whether it was a demon or, or maybe considered a, a relatively uh, a beneficent uh, sort of spirit, or whatever the case may be, benevolent spirit, if you knew the spirit's name, you could exercise power over that spirit. Like If you know their name, you've got their number. And so here, this demon starts using Jesus' name and his title, Son of the Most High God, as a way of trying to use uh, maybe those presumed rules of spirituality, which are not rules, they're just presumptions, as a way of attempting to try to control Jesus and to counteract Jesus' command to come out of the man. Mark says Jesus had already been saying, come out of the man. But the demons are going, ah, let's try one more trick. Jesus, we know your name. We've got your number. Jesus says, watch this. And he turns the table on this legion of demons, and he says, what is your name? Only for us to discover that the demon is not one, but many, a legion of them, maybe, maybe thousands of them. A Roman legion sometimes would consist of up to 6,000 soldiers. We know that uh, there are 2,000 pigs that, that, that the demons eventually come into and send them off the hillside, hurtling into the sea, and are drowned. The number of pigs doesn't necessarily dictate the number of demons. All we know is that there's a whole lot of them inside this man, terrorizing him, holding his soul captive. Now, at this point, you may be coming to this text somewhat skeptically, thinking, oh, this is a really exciting story and all, but really? Demons? Come on. Come on our post-enlightenment, scientific, psychologically advanced society. We've moved past all that, haven't we? Haven't we already disproved the the existence of of demons and spirits and these sorts of things? Surely this guy isn't demon-possessed. Surely this guy just has some sort of yet unidentified mental illness. Maybe he's schizophrenic. Maybe he has dissociative identity disorder. Maybe there's some sort of uh, psychological reason to this. It's probably not demons. It's just something else going on for us to think that way honestly, falls into a very wrong way of viewing the past through the bias of our perceived progress in medical and scientific fields. Now, 2,000 years ago, there weren't MRIs and CT scans or x-rays or psychologists. Obviously, Sigmund Freud hadn't yet come onto the scene, praise the Lord. But that didn't prevent Even the absence of medical and psychological technology and advancement and study, that didn't prevent the ancient world from understanding the difference between actual illnesses and maladies of an unexplainable sort. People who lived 2,000 years ago were not stupid. There were doctors who knew how to treat people, actual illnesses. And there was an understanding of a difference between a person with epilepsy and a person with a demon. The ancient world understood this. Now, there were some things they could do about that and other things that they couldn't do about that. But but they weren't completely ignorant to actual physical maladies and their ability to treat them. And putting all all of that aside, those who are demon-possessed, as we see them described throughout the course of Scripture, do a lot of things that people with verifiable mental illnesses don't. There are actual differences in the the description of demon-possessed people that we can hold against persons with actual verifiable mental illnesses and say... These are not the same thing. Now, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not an expert in the field. I'm reliant a little bit upon the wisdom of of others and the help of others. But, But understand this. First, the demonic, as we see them show up in Scripture, are always speaking rationally and logically with Jesus. They're carrying on a normal, relatively normal conversation with Him. It follows a logical stream of thought. The, the, the demons are not jumping around from topic to topic. They're not erratic and, 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 and just sort of wildly dissociated in their conversation with him. It's logical, it's rational. If this man simply had something like schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, we would expect some something in his speech to be far more erratic and incomprehensible, jumping from one idea to another without much logical connection between the two. It would have been difficult for Jesus to even have a conver- or anyone to have a conversation with him at all. But these demons are speaking clearly and logically, and rationally with Jesus. We see, second of all, that throughout the course of the New Testament and even here, the demonic always despise the person of Christ. When he shows up, they go crazy and not in a good way. They hate his presence. They defy him at at every moment. Here, these demons show up and throw themselves down or throw the man down that they're demonizing in front of Jesus, begging him not to be sent away, not to be tormented as they ask in that final place of punishment for their rebellion against God. They hate Jesus's presence. Very often with persons with actual mental illnesses, they're usually not defiant of Jesus, but very often they have an attraction to the religious, if not a love for Jesus or a desire to know him. Now, whether, whether their perception of Jesus is right or wrong, often among those with mental illness, there's an actual attraction to the religious, not a, not a hating of Jesus. This demon, finally, differentiating what's happening here from a person with a mental illness, this demon displays a certain knowledge of Jesus' identity in a land and among people who did not know much of Jesus or even know Him personally, least of all that He might be the very Son of God. Now, it's possible because the region of the Gerasenes is not far away. It's just a, you know, a boat trip from one side of the lake to the other. It's possible that news of Jesus had spread to the region of the Gerasenes but Mark has not told us that Jesus has done any ministry there yet, that he was known by the people, that they would have recognized his face. There's no social media, right? There's there's no printed media at all. There's no photographs. So it's not like somebody could have taken a picture of Jesus and sent it over the lake and said, hey, watch out for this guy. He's doing some crazy stuff, some neat things. So even if they had heard about Jesus, It's not likely that they would have known or understood who or what he was, that he was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. This demon exercises supernatural knowledge that is not available to people through ordinary means of learning. Normally, persons with mental illnesses only have information gathered through ordinary learning. They only speak about things that they've read in the newspaper or in books or seen on TV or in experience of life. Normally, mentally ill persons do, do not have this sort of supernatural knowledge, but this demon displays it. There's a stark contrast between those who are demonized and those who have actual mental illnesses. It's obvious that this man does not just have schizophrenia. He he's plagued by the demonic. And at the very least, we can say, this is no ordinary sick man. And what happens next in the scene indicates that this is no ordinary event, no ordinary healing. The demons come and using the voice of this man, beg Jesus. Now, there's an emphasis on that word beg throughout the course of these 20 verses. I wonder if you saw them. We'll see them. We'll 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 point them out as we go along. The demons beg Jesus to be sent not to a place of torment, but just send us into this herd of pigs. Please send us there. Now, Jesus, you find, does not send them, but he does permit them. That's what you want to do. Go ahead, leave this man. Go into the pigs if you like. He permits them to go in uh, to the pigs so that the man that they're occupying might be set free. And on his word of permission, the unclean spirits, they enter the pigs. The pigs go hurtling off the uh, the steep hill and drown in the sea. It's a dramatic event. The destructive intent of the demonic in, in seeking to destroy this man is now fully evident and exercised in these pigs. They'll destroy anything that they're in and around and have influence over whether it's this man in his life or this herd of pigs Jesus confronts the demonic in Mark 5 not as a way of demonstrating how we should confront the demonic do not find in Mark chapter 5 a how-to manual on demon exorcism okay don't go home and try this on your neighbor who you think might be demon possessed don't do it But Jesus confronts the demonic as a demonstration of his power over the demonic and his compassion for those who are oppressed by demons. This is a real life illustration of Jesus's earlier parable that described himself as a strong man who binds Satan and plunders the souls that Satan himself had held captive that they might be delivered. This man who was Possessed and oppressed by a legion of demons who no one could bind, not even with chains. These demons are bound by Jesus. The man is set free. Jesus plundering this man's soul from the grip of Satan. These many demons, whom no one could hold captive, are bound to obey the command of Christ. And at His word, this man is liberated. But did you notice how the demons respond to Jesus? Yes, they they beg Him not to send them uh, uh, to send him into the pigs but even before that they beg him not to send them out of their chosen territory please don't, don't send us out of this place they beg him not to destroy them just yet don't send us to that ultimate place of torment but instead to send them into the pigs this demonic horde this legion knows their ultimate end and they know that Jesus is the one who will ultimately end them but they beg him for the time being to leave them alone now here's wonderful news that Jesus, the strong son of the most high God, is able, imminently able, to expel a legion of demons at a word's command. Not just one or two demons in this case, thousands. And here's better news still. Jesus, the strong son of the most high God, can also expel from us the very sin that holds us under its power. The very sin that holds us bound in slavery to the devil and to destruction and rebellion against God. You see, as terrifying as these demons are in this passage, and they are, all the more terrifying is the reality of what awaits us in our sin, in our active, cognizant, not demon-possessed rebellion against God. We, in our rejection of His kingship in our lives, we, like these demons, are headed for hell. The same is that fearful legion. Now, the good news of the gospel, though, as Hebrews two fourteen and 15 says, is that the Son of God took on human flesh and became a man, that he lived without sin and he offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that, as Hebrews 2 says, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, the strong son of God, is confronting the demonic in Mark 5 and expelling it in compassion for this needy man who's been terrorized by these evil spirits. And Jesus confronts sin in you by becoming sin in your place at the cross so that by his death he might free you from the chains of rebellion to God's holiness and make you free. I encourage you this morning, do not resist Jesus, the strong son of God, like this legion did. Don't beg him to leave you alone and go away. Instead, fall at his feet in dependent faith. We see, first of all, Jesus over the demonic in a positive way in this passage. But then in verses 14 through 17, we see Jesus against the crowd. Jesus against the crowd. After the man is freed from this demonic legion, the pig herders we're standing there nearby, go to the town and to the countryside to tell the news of everything that they've seen and all that Jesus has done. And very quickly, many people come out to the tombs to see what they had never expected. The demonized man is no longer naked, but clothed. I've wondered which one of the disciples gave up his cloak to put around that man. That brother has a story to tell. The demonized man is no longer naked, but he's clothed, He's no longer howling at the wind in the strained voice of the legion of demons that controlled him, but now he's sitting there in his right mind. The man that they had exiled as being as good as dead among the dead in the tombs, who they could do nothing to restrain, is now free in the calm of his soul and made alive in ways that they could not imagine were possible. And all the people who saw all of this were terrified. They were afraid, Mark says. The disciples, we saw in the previous scene, were filled with great fear when Jesus calmed the storm at sea. Two words, peace, be still, hush, quiet down. And the storm stops and the disciples are afraid, a fear of, of reverent worship, an awful wonder at the person in the boat with them. But these countrymen from the region of the Gerasenes seem to be afraid for another reason. Not a, not a fear of reverent, not, not a fear of, of reverent worship. But something else. When it's explained to them all that Jesus had done for this demonized man and about the pigs, just like throw in the detail. And don't forget the pigs. See, they're all just floating there, dead in the water. When the crowd hears all this noise about or all the news about what Jesus has done, they beg Jesus to leave them. Did you see that? Chapter 5, verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's interesting, isn't it? The legion of demons begs Jesus not to destroy them. Then they beg Jesus to be allowed to go into the pigs. And the crowd of Gentiles from the region of the Gerasenes begs Jesus to go away. Get out of here, man. Jesus, by his very being, God, threatens to destroy the demons in hell. And Jesus, by his very divine action on behalf of this man among the tombs, threatens the livelihood of these Gentile pig farmers, or so they think. In fact, it was, not the demonic, it was the demonic horde that destroyed the pigs, not Jesus. Jesus merely permitted them to enter the pigs. But nevertheless, they see the effects of Jesus' arrival on the scene, and they say, man, you got to get out of here. Please, sir, you've done enough. We'll, we'll never recover from the financial disaster that's happened here today. If you stay longer, what else will you require from us? First our pigs, then what? What else is going to go wrong for us here? We've got economic interests at stake. Please, just leave us well enough alone and go along. No one invited you here. We're doing fine without you. Please just move on. It's in the crowds begging Jesus to leave that we see the very sad irony of these people. That they valued the lives of 2,000 pigs more than the life of this demon-possessed man. That they loved what profit the pigs could get them more than they loved the well-being of their neighbor. They held in greater esteem what they could become by economic means than they did the very image of God in the tortured man now made whole by Jesus. Just leave us alone. What's one demonized man in comparison to 2,000 pigs like Let's have the pigs. It's my kid's college fund there. And you're throwing them all into the sea just to make this one guy well? The, like two, three, four, five families depended on these pigs, Jesus. I've said that here Jesus is against the crowd, but really it is the crowd that is against Jesus. He's done a great thing in their midst. He's done a great work for this man. But they'd rather just have life the way it was. They'd rather just have their economic structures in place. Here we learn that Jesus, the Messiah, comes bringing the kingdom of God. And where the kingdom of God encounters evil and wickedness, it runs roughshod over it in in the speedy redemption of those who are held captive by wickedness. And that's what we want Jesus to do, right? That's what we want the kingdom of God to do, right? To run over wickedness wherever it is to save the lost and hurting, right? Right? Not for these people among the Garrisons. They'd rather have their pigs. At the same time, we see that there are human beings here among the Garrisons who are not demon-possessed. The legion possessed one man, not all the crowd. These people are in their right mind. These people in their right mind see all the good things that Jesus does in delivering this broken, tormented man and still want nothing to do with Jesus. Just give us our pigs. Do you hear the call made in the interaction of Jesus with the crowd in their conflict? It's a call to, one, to value human life the way that Jesus does, as being more important than material goods. There's a call in this text to see the image of God in every human life and to love its physical and spiritual well-being even more than we love our acclamation to a certain kind of lifestyle. It's a call to see the salvation of souls as infinitely more important than making a buck. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't see to our family's well-being. I'm not saying we should not work to provide for our family and so on. Obviously, we ought to. There's plenty of places in Scripture that call us to be responsible, to care for our family, to work hard, to make a living, to feed them and, and support the ministry of the gospel through our local church. But I am saying that Jesus calls us to see the broken who are around us the hurting around us, the spiritually demonized, the spiritually oppressed, those who are lost in their sin around us, and to value them and to pray for them and to seek their healing. I don't think any of us as Christians would see a sincerely lost and needy person and intentionally turn our backs to them when we have the gospel of Jesus Christ to help them with. I don't think any of us in this room who are following Jesus would intentionally do that. I'm just saying we ought to be sure that we don't unintentionally turn our backs On those who need the gospel because to help them would be inconvenient for us. I'd get the gospel to that person, but I'm on my way to a meeting. I know the single mom's hurting, but we've got stuff to do tonight. I know that my neighbor's got cancer and he doesn't know the Lord, but gosh, I've already been at work 10 hours today and just kind of pooped. beware. This passage calls us to beware, to watch out. For to turn our hearts from Christ for the sake of convenience in the presence of those who genuinely need him is to find ourselves against him. This crowd finds themselves against Jesus because they'd rather have their pigs and a demon possessed man than a free man and no pigs. Beware of asking Jesus to leave you alone. Jesus, quit bugging me to do this or to do that to go to this person or to share with that person. Beware of asking Jesus to leave you alone because in your hard-heartedness, He might. He might. Do not take His gracious overtures and invitation to salvation for granted, but receive them and submit to Him today, lest He leave His advances toward you to go to others who will receive Him. If you're not yet a believer this morning and you're hearing this call to the gospel to trust Jesus, to repent of your sin, place your faith in him, to make him Lord of your life today, and you're going, good night, I wish this pastor would stop talking about how I need to respond to Jesus. Why don't you just leave me alone? Everywhere I go, it's an invitation to follow Jesus. I got a guy at work who's telling me about Jesus all the time. Every time I turn on the radio, there's some other song that's pointing me to Jesus. Every time I turn on the TV, there's some person, an athlete or a politician, talking about Jesus, and that's not why I tuned in for. Everywhere I go, there's this invitation to Jesus. Jesus, just leave me alone. Friend, beware of having that sort of attitude toward him, because he just might. He just might. Instead, listen to what Jesus is saying through the call of the gospel here today, through the call of the gospel through your, your coworker, through your neighbor, uh, through the reminders that you may get in, in media as God providentially puts them in front of you and respond to Jesus in faith. But to the one who does feel lost, to the one who does feel spiritually shattered, to the one who does feel enslaved to sin, there's not a word of warning to you, but there is a, a, a word of very good news and encouragement to you. Very good news for us in Christ in this passage. If you feel spiritually lost, if you know that your life is broken by sin, if you feel enslaved to your rebellion against God, like you just can't stop doing all these things that you know are morally wrong and you want nothing but to not do them anymore, there's good news for you. Jesus, the strong son of the most high God, sees you. And he, the very divine son of God, stepped out of heaven and into human flesh like yours and mine to rescue you. He was crucified for your sins, for all the things that keep you up at night. But He was raised from the dead in order to raise you from the dead. The very wonderful hope of Christ's resurrection after His crucifixion is that sin doesn't have to win the day or even the final battle for you, but that Christ's life might make you alive also. The same kind of spiritual calm and peace that now, the, that now possesses the formerly demon-possessed man, his peace and his calm because of Christ may be yours in Christ Jesus also. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 26, says this, that you, the Lord, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Jesus stands to give you peace. There's peace and calm. Peace from the the, the ongoing uh, torrent and, 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 and tempest that drives within you in frustration and guilt and shame over your sin and rebellion against God. All of that may be calmed at the command of Christ if you submit to Him as Lord. Jesus Himself promised this kind of peace and calm if we'll believe him. In John 14, 27, he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Jesus stands over the demonic. He stands against the crowd to point out that they, what they want is maybe peace of mind and peace of quality of living. But what he stands to give is peace in its entirety to those who are spiritually broken. And if you're spiritually broken, like this demonized man, there's hope for you in Jesus today. I hope you'll trust him. So Jesus stands over the demonic. He stands against the crowd. But finally, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus stands for the delivered. He stands for those he rescues. Jesus, at the request of the ironically self-interested crowd, who says, please just leave, does. He gets in the boat to go back to the other side of the sea, But in verse 18, we see the man who's just been delivered from this legion of demons. Now, again, there's that word, begging Jesus that he might be with him. The demons beg Jesus, don't torment us. The people beg Jesus, please go away. This delivered man, this Gentile man, not previously looking for the Jewish Messiah, knows that he has seen his Savior in the man, Jesus, and says, please, wherever you're going, I'm begging you, take me too. Let me be nowhere else but beside you. So the demons who despise Jesus don't want to be destroyed. The crowd wants Jesus to leave, but this man begs to be a disciple, begs to follow Jesus. Now, this man will become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but not the kind that he wanted to be, at least not in the way that he wanted to be. Jesus, in a a move that might seem really odd to us, really strange to us, rejects this man's desire to go with him. He rejects this man as being a part of his cadre of traveling partners. I've got 12, brother. I don't need 13 that's on purpose. I don't think Jesus said that. But he, he does not reject this man outright. Instead, Jesus commissions this man. He gives him a task. He gives him a call. He commissions him to be a herald and a living witness to the goodness and mercy of the God of the Bible, even for Gentiles. Jesus is not against this man at all, but friends, Jesus is entirely for this man. Jesus is for this man's healing. He sets him free from this legion of demons that had tormented his soul. Jesus is for this man's life. He sends him home to be reunited to his family and to his friends. Jesus is for this man's joy to proclaim the wonderful works of God as a Gentile missionary to Gentiles ever before the Great Commission was ever given. What Jesus does and how Jesus commands this man is a a shadow, it's a precursor of the way that Jesus is for, that He is behind everyone that He delivers by their faith in Him even today. Jesus is for your spiritual healing, my friend. That's why He came so that you might place your trust in him, so that you might be forgiven of sin, so that you might be born again, and so that you might live an abundant, rescued life in the power of God. Jesus is for your spiritual healing, the same way he was for this man. Jesus is for your life, the same way he was for this man's life. Jesus was resurrected for you and for your resurrection one day from the dead. When you come to him as Lord, he brings you to be adopted by God as a brother and a sister to every other believer who has made that faithful choice to follow him. The church becomes a place for you to revel among other beloved believers by uh, other who are others who are beloved by God in His grace and mercy. The church becomes a home for the redeemed and a hospital for sinners seeking healing. It becomes a house of praise for the God who rescues. Jesus is for your life, a life of abundance. And not an abundance of stuff, but an abundance of purpose, an abundance of praise, an abundance of a kind and a quality of life that only God can give. Jesus is also, dear friend, for your joy. He wants you to have joy. The scriptures tell us that as human beings, we're made in God's image. Satan hates it, wants to destroy it. But as image bearers of God, we are made by him to be like living mirrors of his character in the world, to reflect the character of God, to reflect the glory of God, to reflect the goodness of God in the world. And we reflect his character only so far as our lives are actually pointed and oriented to him. You know how mirrors work. They don't reflect stuff that they're not pointed at. We're made to reflect God's glory. But Satan, the enemy of God, who is a thief, who comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, as Jesus says in John 10, the lion who prowls about seeking image bearers to devour, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Satan and we by our own sinful inclinations given to us by our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned in the garden and so became sinners and passed on that sinful disposition to all of us. Satan and our sinful lives shatter That living mirror, such that we cannot reflect God's glory and character in the world as the way we were designed. Satan loves to shatter lives by oppression and temptation and destruction and to cause despair to all who are still in their sin. And we do all our own work too in shattering our own lives by rebelling against God's design for us. But Jesus is not for our despair, Jesus is for our joy. Jesus frees the slave to sin, to be a servant of righteousness and a child of God. Jesus offers forgiveness of sin and strength to resist temptation. Jesus restores what was splintered and reorients our broken hearts to unfold in the light of God's grace to joyfully do what we were made to do, to bask in the goodness of God and declare His mercies that the world might know Him. What Jesus does for this broken man, this demon-possessed man, is fix him up and make him whole to joyfully do what God made him to do from the beginning, to tell everyone of the wonderful goodness and mercy of God and all that he had done for him. Jesus gives this man a new life, a whole life, restored relationships. He gives him the joy of proclaiming all that God has done in him and for him. We who have been truly saved by Jesus, we who know this Jesus, who have trusted this Jesus, ought to rejoice for the knowledge that we have of all that Christ has given to us, knowing that our lives have been put back together by God's grace through faith in Christ and in Him only, knowing that we have been made to reflect God's character and glory out in the world so that others might see His His beauty and all of his manifold perfections we ought to love doing what god has made us to do and saved us to do we who proclaim all that christ has done for us are doing precisely what we have been made by god and saved by god to do and we ought to love to do it like this man who runs back home to tell his friends of all that jesus had done for him such that everyone who hears marvels at it we saw him before Broken, demonized, tormented, out of his mind, naked, in the tombs, cutting himself. Hot mess and worse. And now look at him. I mean, it's the same guy. He's got all the scars and everything that he went through, but he's got clothes on now. He's in his right mind. And he's talking about this Jesus guy. His whole, like, his whole life is back to it's a complete 180, and nobody could do anything about it before. But now, something. who's the one that fixed this? It's Jesus. What? Tell us more, brother. Jesus stands over the demonic in a way that calls us or maybe warns us not to be opposed to Jesus as the demons were. Jesus stands against the crowd as a way of warning us not to give Jesus the stiff arm for the sake of our convenience, but at the same time right, to welcome the one who knows that they are broken and needs, and, and needs Jesus, that Jesus sees them, he's responsive to them, and, and Jesus stands for this man for the, the spiritually broken, for the ones that He delivers. He stands for them to give them joy, to give them life, to give them healing. When Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 5 and starts doing the things that only the Son of the Most High God can do, expelling demons and healing the broken, people respond to Him a lot of different ways. I began by asking us how we would respond if Jesus were to walk into this room today, to show up start doing what He does. The truth of the matter is, friends, he's already present in this place. In his divinity, he is ever present. And he has made his very home in the hearts of his followers through the Holy Spirit. As we repent of sin and trust in Christ, he gives us his own Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to make his home in us. We don't have to wait for Jesus to walk through the doors. He's already present, Christian. He's here. And he's doing among us what only he can do. Convicting of sin giving us wisdom unto salvation through His Word, calling us to praise His name? The question is, how are you responding to it? The presence of Jesus doing only what He can do through His Word among His people, how are we responding to it? Are we receiving Him gladly with joy? Are we holding Him at a distance saying, just leave me alone a minute? Have we pushed Him completely out of the picture to say, I know where I'm headed. It's nowhere with you. Just get out of my face. let me go there this morning if you're not a believer you've you've heard of all the hope all the joy all the life that comes in knowing jesus and allowing him to do in you what only he can do maybe you're still on the edge and you're just not sure about who this jesus is you'd like to know what christ has done not just for this demon possessed man but you'd like to know what jesus has done for someone in this room like yeah okay i see what jesus did for this guy but what's he doing now how's he changing lives today? I want to invite you to hear a story of grace from one of us today. And church, I didn't prepare you for this, so don't feel obligated to raise your hand in a moment. But if you as a follower of Jesus have a story to tell of Christ's faithfulness and power in your life, and it doesn't have to be something crazy like he delivered me from addiction and and my marriage was, was, was completely falling apart and he restored it, although it could be those things, but something that Jesus has has brought together, brokenness that Jesus has brought together in your life, something that only he could do, and you're willing to share that with someone who needs to hear a story of Jesus' grace and power this morning. If you're a member of our church and you have a story to tell about Jesus' grace, would you just raise your hand where you are and keep it up for a second? If you're ready and willing to share a story of God's grace and mercy, my hand's up not to demonstrate how to raise hands, my hand's up to say, you can come talk to me too. Keep your hand up for just a moment. Sorry, this is exercise in shoulder strength. If you're here this morning, if you're not a believer and you're looking for a story of God's grace and mercy and power in the life of someone, like a real story, fix your eyes on a hand that's in the air right now and make it a point to go talk to that person as soon as we dismiss today and to say, what has Christ done for you? I need to know. Christian, keep your hands up. You switch hands if you need to, okay? (laughs) Christian here today, if you're discouraged, frustrated, broken, stuck in, in sin. And you just need to hear from somebody else that Jesus is still working, that he's still powerful. You need a word of encouragement. Grab one of these brothers or sisters with their hand up and say, tell me what Christ has done for you. I I, I need to be uplifted. And and then pray for me because here's what's going on in my life and here's what I need him to do for me. You can put your hands down. Friend, you ask anyone who had their hand up today who has a story to share about the power of Jesus and how we've responded to him. You ask, what has Christ done for you? And we will, with all gladness, share not only what he's done for us, but we will also share how he will forgive your sins and how he'll begin the slow but faithful process of making you new and whole as you come to trust in him and follow him. As you beg Jesus, let me be with you. He is glad to receive you, give you healing, give you life, give you joy in his name to do what God has made you to do. Jesus, a strong son of God, has all power to expel the demonic and bring spiritual healing, how do you respond to that beautiful truth? Let's pray together.